Welcome to the Regen Brands Podcast. This is a place for consumers, operators, and investors to learn about the consumer brands supporting regenerative agriculture and how they're changing the world. This is your host, Kyle, joined by my co-host, AC, who's going to take us into the episode. On this episode, we have Nick Wiseman, who is a co-founder and the CEO of Little Sesame. Little Sesame is supporting regenerative agriculture with its lineup of organic and regeneratively farmed hummus products. That includes a flavor lineup of Smooth Classic, Jammy Tomato, Caramelized Onion, Herby Jalapeno, and the newly launched Preserved Lemon. In this episode, we learn how Nick and his team pivoted Little Sesame from restaurant to retail during COVID, the freshly spun difference that makes their hummus unique, and Little Sesame's explosive growth strategy and results. We covered a ton with Nick in this one, y'all. This episode is super rich with insights into everything from direct trade farm relationships to driving product velocities at retail to building self-manufacturing as a competitive advantage. Pumped to share it with you. Let's go. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Regen Brands podcast. Very excited today to have our friend Nick from Little Sesame joining us. So welcome, Nick. Hey, how y'all doing? We're great, man. We're particularly excited. I'm particularly excited about this episode. Um, I love consuming regenerative products. I am uh, an unpaid affiliate for Little Sesame. Uh, I no, Kyle, the crap. Kyle is a Little Sesame <laughs> fanboy. I remember like a year ago, he no was joke. like, bro, there's this brand, Little Sesame. It's so cool. Like, we got to get them on the pod. They're amazing. So Kyle's your biggest fan, Nick. I literally, like, <laughs> Christmas this year at my house, like, my my parents bought like Sabra hummus and I brought little sesame hummus. I was like, you guys can eat your peasant hummus if you want. Like I'm eating the good stuff and try to convert everybody. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm carrying that torch strong. Um, so we're super pumped. Um, Nick, for those who are unfamiliar with the brand Little Sesame, give us a quick like lay of the land. What skews do you produce? Um, where can people find you today? You know, set the table for us. Absolutely. So we the centerpiece we make is freshly spun hummus using 100% regenerally farmed chickpeas. Um, we make uh, like a, a nice core lineup of SKUs. We have our like smooth classic, um, herby jalapeno, caramelized onion, and jammy tomato. And we just recently dropped preserved lemon hummus. We're actually upcycling all the lemons we use for juice in the hummus. Uh, we're, we're now nationwide Whole Foods, Sprouts, uh, Sweet Green. Then we're in like another thousand kind of small independent or secondary doors uh, in D.C., New York, and L.A. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm super upset that Preserved Lemon is not available in retail today. Uh, I didn't know that SKU would launch until I went on the website this morning, and I was, like, literally salivating. So, man, get that thing in retail ASAP. Yeah. Coming soon. Coming soon. Come. Um, actually, yeah, we, we, can, we can share that news here. We have to come into Sprout soon. Um, in the next few weeks, you'll see it on Sprout shelves nationwide, and then Let's go. soon thereafter at Whole Foods. So. Let's go. Heck, yeah. Nice. Yeah, Kyle and I are in a fight. He's a herby jalapeno guy. I'm a caramelized onion guy. Um, my story with Little Sesame is I had not tried the product and I was on a big family trip in Colorado and we stopped at a Whole Foods kind of before we got into the mountains. And I just, of course, got the cart and like grabbed every regenerative item at this Whole Foods in some random town in, in Colorado. And so we had all the SKUs and it was really cool to you know show the whole family and talk about the regen piece and all that. Um, but... We know there's a super cool story behind all of this, Nick. So share with uh, the listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you know Little, Ses- Little Sesame came to be. Absolutely. So actually started my journey as a line cook. Started cooking in professionally in restaurants when I was 15 years old. Um, wow. Kind of chasing, chasing chef dreams. Um, 
made the smart decision to go to school. I went to school out in California, but then immediately was like, you know, back to, back to chef life and um, landed in New York City cooking in Mitchell Star restaurants. Um, where I happened to be trained on the fish station by this guy named Ronan, who's now came to be a partner of Little Sesame. Ronan um, and I kind of shared the same passion for, um, you know, kind of bringing that high quality experience, but reaching more people. And so we, we always kind of dreamed up of, of like what we could do together. Wanted to have more fun than sort of like the, the structure and rigidity of fine dining. And so we, we started Little Sesame a few years later. Um, it's been in freshly spun hummus and um, out of a small pop-up shop in D.C., 500 square foot basement in the heart of D.C., and from there, you know, it, it, you know, we'd go to farmer's markets on the weekends, uh, buy, buy ingredients, you know, we write kind of a new menu every week and people just loved it. You know, people were, were lying about the door. We, at the time I had met Casey Bailey, who was a farmer in Montana through my wife who had done food core, worked on like trying to bring Montana agriculture into schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this relationship with Casey. And, you know, I had to basically convince Casey it was worth it to, to send 50 pound bags of chickpeas at a time when he's out there growing on 5,000 5, acres. So it made zero, zero economic sense for him. Um, but, you know, enough calls later convinced him that it was worth it. So, you know, Ron and I started spinning hummus, you know, a few pounds at a time in a tabletop mixer. But we built a real following around the product out, out, outside of this little pop-up restaurant. And two years later, fast forward, we launched the first brick and mortar. Uh, standalone restaurant a few blocks away from the pop-up um, nice. to a lot of acclaim. DC loved it, rallied behind us, um, you know, lines out the door. People were really excited about what we were doing. Um, maintained the same sort of quality of ingredient supply chain, started to scale that relationship with Casey to make a bit more sense. <laughs> um, and um, then fast forward two years and boom, pandemic hit. So, you know, we had planned to scale that up and really like, grow a restaurant business and obviously it, sort of was yep. it like a broader mediterranean concept and the hummus was just the center point or was it literally we literally just like a hummus restaurant or what's the what was the menu <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of hummus to be no it was it was hummus bowls pita sandwiches so Got it. Cool. again like always rotating through seasonal ingredients so we were able to like work with some cool small farmers um on you know on the east coast kind of featuring a menu that changed throughout the year um yeah. and uh Again, part of the thesis as well was like, hey, we're serving downtown office workers, a little like Oasis away from their busy work days. Mm-hmm. So, um, COVID. you know, COVID, boom, office yeah. workers gone, overnight yeah. evaporated. So had to shift, you know, product didn't have to shift, but distribution strategy had to shift. And so we started hand packing pints of hummus. Um, kind of proudly, we turned the front half restaurant into a community kitchen. We served 100,000 free meals during the pandemic. Wow. The back half. Back after the restaurant, we turned into a lab, and Ron and myself and third guy Ron um, spent better half part of a year figuring out how to commercialize the hummus for grocery store shelves. Um, and we're lucky enough to land a deal and, and end up in 14 Whole Foods in the Mid Atlantic. So that's kind of the journey that got us to to wow. CPG. Wow, and I feel like you're using this word spun very intentionally, and I don't know what that means. Like, that. like, yeah, what people does that like mean? in my mind, you make hummus, but yeah, what does it mean to spin hummus, and why is yeah, that freshly different? Freshly spun. It is. We use that. We use that a lot. You know, it's interesting, especially as people scale up the way that people blend hummus changes a lot. So it goes like these inline, small blended tubes, which, you know, just probably no one pays attention to. But key to us is, you know, as we even as we've scaled up, we've never changed the way we blend the hummus. Um, and the way we blend it adds aeration. Um, it gets that level of creaminess. 
So, you know, it's just one big differentiator for us from the rest of the stuff that's on the shelf. Um, and that we're very intentional about that. You know, we've scaled up our cooking tremendously. We've scaled up our, our, our filling and sealing tremendously, but in the middle, we're still very manual. You know, we're spinning in small batches throughout the day. Is that, oh, yeah. Is that like a trade secret, Nick, that like you can't reveal how you do that? Or is it just something that everyone else like knows about and chooses not to do? You know, most people, when there are size and we got the same advice, it was like, don't manufacture, you know, don't, yeah. don't make your own product. Too many pitfalls. <laughs> it's yeah. a horrible idea. And, you know, probably rightfully so, you know, lucky for us, we were like scrappy restaurant people. So we were able to kind of apply that, that lens to manufacturing and learn along the way. We also equipped ourselves with some smart people that had done it before. Yeah. Shout out to Ian Barrett. He's a big regenerative guy and hopefully we'll listen in, but um, he helped us a lot. He had built Hope Hummus actually as their CEO. So he, he was helpful to us in sort of wow. imagining and building our, our scale up of, of hummus as we moved um, into our manufacturing facility. But yeah, that was, again, when we were talking to co-packers, no one would, no one would do it that way, but no one else, no one would soak chickpeas raw. No one would fresh squeeze lemons. No one would blend that way. So there was a bunch of things we were doing that uh, the co-packers wouldn't do. And those sort of qualitative differences were what we believe is like what makes the product shine right. on shelf. Yeah, what's particularly impressive is that you're able to maintain that level of like high integrity manufacturing while not having a super premium price point at shelf. So the fact that you're able to like pull that off is incredible. Previously on the podcast, we had a uh, almond butter company who like stone ground almond butter, you know, and and for the quality and the nutritional differences, like they that's what they believe in. But that really like put them in this pigeonhole of like super high premium ARPs, which doesn't make the product super approachable. So, you know, kudos to you all for figuring out how to do that at scale with a national launch. Like that must not have been easy. Um, so yeah, kudos to you all. Yeah, I mean, the value of manufacturing is that like direct control supply chain, you know, mm -hmm. sight line to what things cost, negotiating our own, um, our, co our own contracts with suppliers upstream. And then we spent a lot of time actually building relationships with suppliers. You know, Casey, we'd known since we were buying 50 pounds at a time. So mm -hmm. we had these relationships that we built over years um, that we just continued to grow. So it became a win-win for us as we saw real scale and that helped us really drive down, down cost. Mm -hmm. Totally makes sense. You know, and I appreciate the, uh, the context for the, the origin story. What we did not touch on at all for the origin story was the regen piece. So I'm curious from your perspective, like when did regen become the word or the movement? Mm -hmm. Why did you really want to work so badly with Casey? And you know, what is What does that relationship look like? Like how did that develop and what does it look like moving forward? Yeah, so as I said, my wife was out in Montana, and um, you know, I, we, I I grew up on you know, the East Coast. You know, like farms I knew here were like you know big ones were a couple hundred acres, and those were like really big ones, right? Most most things were small patches of land growing on you know twenty thirty acres, diversified vegetables. So that was kind of like the agriculture I grew up with and knew. But I'll say even you know I'd say like I can start the culinary journey even a bit earlier, which is like I was in high end fine dining kitchens, and there was really no connection to agriculture like hmm. we weren't thinking at all about like this origin story of, of the food it was like quality was a driver but it didn't have any connection to quality of agriculture or the agriculture hmm. story or farmer attached to it that's just started when i was really cooking i'm, I'm now mid-30s i started cooking 15 so almost 20 years ago that whole like there was this that was that was percolating obviously like starting cali alice waters and like that whole movement there that started moving you know across the u.s but um that like network of growers didn't really exist. So there was no connection in my like professional life of like food and agriculture. Um, and then I went to school at Berkeley, California. And it's like, you have lemon trees like growing out of the street and you have restaurants like <laughs> Alice, 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 
Alice Waters who are like telling this story in your face and like making it clear like provenance of ingredient really matters. And then you like taste it like, holy shit, it does. There is such a huge impact when you do follow this agriculture story. Um, So I I then drew this connection. So that was like really for me when it it synthesized. Um, And then I'd say part three of that was like, whoa, agriculture kind of in my later, like two years later after that, it was when I'm cooking kind of learning the impact that agriculture had on climate. And for me, that was like Mm. the big through line, which is like Mm. food, agriculture, climate. If we can shift food, there's so much potential impact up and downstream, um, both on like agriculture practices and healing lands and investing in like rural America. And then also like up, you know, in terms of upstream in terms of like the climate impact it could have in the long term. So that for me was like aha moment where I was like, wow, I want to, if I consider this intersection, I can maybe make a, a bit of an impact. And so, that's where I sat. And then, so back to the Montana story, I was like, I was used to these small little chopped up farms in the East coast. And I saw this land in Montana and the acreage in which they were growing. And I was just like, <laughs> so you know, I'd never seen anything like, you know, they needed like planes to manage this land. It was so big. Yeah. I think from one side of, to the other of Casey's farm, it took us like 45 minutes to drive. Um, wow. It's just so much land. And so the potential for impact was so huge. So I just got even more excited. And, and I was like, double down, like how, how can I, build a business around scaling this type of agriculture and maintaining these, like the health of these grasslands. Um, and so that was, you know, that was another driver behind, behind little Sesame. Mm. I, I think AC's got a question, but I need to sidebar real quick. When we talk about the wild urban agricultural environment in Berkeley, um, there's also not just lemon <laughs> trees growing out of the sidewalks, but there's like, like literal packs of wild turkeys that are so intimidating, just like roaming the streets. <laughs> Like literally like on the sidewalk, they're just like strutting and they're like, you get off my sidewalk. Like we're not moving for you. Um, it's crazy. So just had to share that story. Not a lot of opportunities to talk about wild turkeys in Berkeley, but this was one <laughs> thrill out there. Oh man, that's so, that's so cool. There's so many like themes that have come out in so many of these episodes that are coming to mind, Nick, as you share all that. Um, I'm going to try and piece them together in a, in a coherent and concise manner. So bear with me here, but it's like, the need for the production to lock in the good agricultural value. And so like it can't just end at the farm and the way that the the products are manufactured is so important, both from a customer palatability and a differentiation perspective, but also a, you know, kind of locking in all the value that was created on farm. And that's so evident with all these regenerative brands having, you know, an entrepreneur at the helm or, or a team of entrepreneurs at the helm that are both savvy and can figure out how to make the economics work, which is a challenge, but also care about the impact in the climate piece and find ways to do that, like the direct trade relationships, like the the self-manufacturing, like that's really, you know, bubbling up for me based on what you're sharing. Um, so just, just really cool. And I think, you know, that last piece and what y'all are a great example of is there's not a ton of brands that are in line from a price point perspective in the regen space and y'all are there. And I've seen some investor decks that share some, some solid margins as well to go along with that. So it's really impressive and it's really important, right? Because we can't, we can't really scale this unless we can do both of those things, have adequate margins from an enterprise perspective and have a a price point that's accessible from a customer perspective. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've learned over my, like I started in restaurants and kind of have, I've run the gamut and, and learned a lot there. You know, you have to be scrappy in restaurants. Like restaurants aren't built like a lot of CPG brands where you can spend a lot of venture money to figure it out, right? Like restaurants <laughs> have, to be, have to be profitable. They're, it's a different. So yeah. I, that's that's like the world I grew up in um, and sort of like learned in the trenches. Um, so that was certainly like a driving force behind like how, how we built the model was um, how we could be scrappy and again, provide like value on shelf, but also 
uh, continue to make good investments into good agriculture. So that was trying to trying to like thread that needle was has always been kind of the driving force for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to like take it to like the agronomy piece, which th- this feels more like Ethan and I recently have been like role reversal. I usually talk about region <laughs> stuff, so it feels good to be back in my home. Um, so talk to us a little bit about like what Casey's doing on his farm and how that's different yeah. from how the majority of chickpeas are grown in the United States or abroad. Right. So um, Casey could do a lot better job explaining this than I, you know, these uh, shout out to all farmers, really, and, no matter how tried. How we had Casey who was going to come on, but he is a part of the what? What's the governing body in Montana? Um, yeah, he, he's, he, he he's works on policy and and farmer based stuff in Montana. He's really underwater right now doing all that. So we are going to have a brand farmer combo episode at some point, and we'll have Casey on at some point. But just to, he he couldn't join us today, unfortunately. So yeah, Casey inherit Casey is farming on fifth generation land. He inherited the land from his from his parents, who were also farmers. Um, mm. They were farming pretty traditionally, like in that commodity wheat rotation of farming, which is like what you see most across um, the grasslands across like the, the Great Plains there. And so um, Casey studied theology. He like sort of left wow. farming for a while, but then decided like. Um, and was like, I'm never going to farm. And, but then mm. of course, like a lot of awesome next gen farmers, like came back was like, no, I, this is like where I want to make an impact. I want to come back to the land and try to think about things slightly differently. Um, and so Casey basically took over 5,000 acres of land and experimented for 10 years and tried to figure out how we wow. could turn it back, wow. turn, turn it back to organic. Now he was lucky to kind of work under this group called timeless seeds started by yeah. Dave, Dave Owen was like renegade farmers in the seventies that kind of like saw this early of like this first move into region creating value for, for cash crops that could then incentivize farmers to leave the security of, of commodity wheat. And so anyway, Casey, Casey was like under their umbrella and under their wing and learning from them, but also simultaneously just sort of testing um, ways to grow in his land differently and he did a lot of like perennial rotations of alfalfa and then i remember him showing us on the farm where like deep tap roots this was like 15 feet deep of, of the alfalfa wow. just healing healing the soil wow. after ge- generations of just using the soil tilling farming tilling farming so mm-hmm. um he, he spent a lot of time just like on soil health um and then he started like sort of testing this choreography of a crop rotation so at one point i think he was growing up to 17 crops blending you know chickpeas wow. obviously chickpea obviously at the centerpiece chickpeas at the centerpiece but um did lentils did winter wheat did um flax you know a lot of things that he brought into the rotation and it was all a test right like what works what you know it could be co-planted you know different seasons extending seasons for himself um so i think you know he would explain it as like a 10-year giant experiment um and there wasn't really a roadmap on how to do it uh, but what's pretty amazing to me when i saw land is it was 45 minutes to drive across the land yet he managed it with two two people and that was just because like there was really just like um a college he was working to his advantage right like his like a, a team of could have been 10 more people was like the ecology was the other 10 people and so it was him and his his partner were like really managing this massive piece of land and um he had nature like working um in tandem with him to make it really work at scale and so minimal water inputs um you know, and it was pretty amazing to like watch the choreograph choreography built sort of over a decade and and see it working in action. So um, I'm not sure he'd say it's like working in action yet, but um, I know what he had, you know, because I think for him, it's a lifelong experiment. But I know what he had sort of he was able to grow like an equally yielding in terms of per acreage crop 
um, higher protein, so healthier crop um, without using any of the synthetic inputs that you see on the sort of commodity side of farming. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. And I love the way you phrased it, like the ecology is working for him. Um, it's mm-hmm. one of those like human, I think, inherent things like we can control nature, right? We can develop new scientific tactics, develop machinery and control our environment. But at the end of the day, like we're going food outside. If you're in a greenhouse or some sort of indoor facility, it's a little bit different. But if you're growing food outside, like you need to work with nature. And also like this notion of like soil is a substrate and it, it, its only value is what we put into it rather than the soil being like the value in and of itself and like allowing that ecology, that microbiome to work for you um, is just something that is so far removed from most agricultural today. So really appreciate that notion of like letting nature work for you, working with nature to develop, you know, a more profitable entity requiring less inputs, less people, less manpower and creating better products at the same time. Like it's such a win when you lay it out that way. And I get so frustrated as to why like more people aren't doing it yet, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's pretty amazing to see. I mean, we brought our whole team out there to see it. And it was, you know, all of us were just completely blown away by like um, what we were used to seeing when you fly over America and you just like see these chopped up pieces of land that are artificially green. And, um, you know, it's it was just such like a unique experience for us to to go out there and learn and see and be challenged in a way to think about agriculture in a whole new way. So um, and again, it's like right next door to farms that are still um, stuck in sort of commodity wheat rotation. So it was really cool to see like the side by side. Yeah. Case is also cool is because I think, you know, like a lot of these farmers, I think it and, and the challenge, I think the one piece regenerative has from the farming perspective is like it can be polarizing, like so many issues in America now. Right. Like Amen. it's um, an approach of like it's not better or, you know, it's I think from that's the way he's approached. It's like, hey, I'm just learning to do it a different way. And we're all figuring this thing out together. And I think that approach has like brought a lot of people um, to Casey and why he's become kind of like a de facto leader in the space is because I think he's been really good about building like a coalition around him and, and, and bringing people to, to think about things in a new way. Um, not by like proselytizing or selling his vision, but by, by making it accessible and, um, and encouraging people to think about things in a new way. So it's cool. Yeah. That, that, that really stood out to me in, in the kind of the question that Kyle just posed, Nick was like, why are more people not doing this? And it's, and, and the, the thing that really struck me like lightning when you were talking about Casey is this is a 10 year experiment and we have not given the farmers the proper incentives, economic support to where they can be experimental like that. And like that, I think, is where regenerative has so much potential to do that. And it be this never ending journey. Like you also mentioned that Casey really feels like this. This is never going to end. This is a lifelong thing. And we know that regen brands are not the silver bullet to do that every single time. But we have seen countless times now that they do expand that experimental capacity of these farmers. And like, we, we have to do that because that's how we get them on the path. And then we get into the whole, uh, the more contentious issue of like, what level of that path or where on the continuum do you deserve market validation for those experimental efforts, right? And what, what outcomes do you need to do to prove it? Or what, what practices do you need to follow to prove it? Which to me usually gets us away from the main point, which is like the, the, the work that's actually happening, right? Totally. Yeah, I, I, and I love that. And I think that's where we've tried to be like relationship first and all these relations, you know, and all of our like mm-hmm. we think about supply chain is that like it is, there is flexibility and it is always changing. It is an experiment. And I guess like that's, it's our, the challenge of us is to tell that story meaningfully. And then we can again empower Casey to kind of like, you know, help him be on this journey and, and grow together. But, you know, we were always, you know, he had a, 
a shitty year last year. It was a bad weather year. You know, climate change is certainly like rearing its head out, out, out there. And so weather patterns are unpredictable and you can have bad seasons. And we were able to work together to like solve the problem, right? It wasn't like, hey, move on. Let's find a new farmer. It was like, hey, I have a network of other farmers who are doing things the right way here. Let's like, can we absorb some of the, some of their product into ours for this year? And so we had this flexibility when like COVID hit and, you know, we were like, damn, what we don't even know what our business is going to look like. Um, Casey was like, hey, hold, you know, like, don't pay me. You've just accepted a lot of product. Don't don't pay me. Pay me when you can. So it's like there is the give and take that comes out of those relationships. And I think that's going to be like a necessary part of of scaling this region. Ag is 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 both brands or, or restaurants that can scale meaningfully and farmers that are willing to like take the leap. And together, um, you can start to see a real shift. And so that's that's what we're excited about is is like continuing to tell the story of that's why we, we lead all often with the story of Casey, right? It's just like, you know, it's just one farmer, but it is that I think an example of like the power of the relationship to drive the change. How'd you get him to take a flyer on you early on? Like, how'd you get him to send you the first 50 pound bag? Like, obviously you're probably buying thousands of pounds from the guy now, but like what, how did you convince him to be like, Hey, said, Hey dude, send me one 50 pound bag. Like uh, I'm, I'm, probably my wife, you know, like she, yeah. she's, she's more convincing than I am, but, um, <laughs> And she, she had, she had known Casey from before, but I, you know, I, I probably had like a little glimmer in my eye of hope that like we could build something meaningful. I'm sure I sold them on a bigger story and, um, yeah. you know, you know, I tried to, sounds like a founder. <laughs> exactly. An idealistic founder before yeah. you're jaded from being in the trenches, but no, I, um, the uh, cynicism hadn't set in yet, yeah. but, uh, no, I, I, you know, I think it was, um, you know, I, I laid out, I think always it's been for us, it's like, here, here's the vision and we believe it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, take a leap with us. And so, you know, we've convinced mm-hmm. a few people to, to take the leap along the way. Love that. I want to rewind to a part of the story you just shared about like the fragility of regenerative supply chains. And this is particularly important to me, especially from like a retail and or certification perspective. Like to your point, like you've got a great partnership with this amazing farmer who might have a bad season. And you might need to source from a different supply chain who might not have the same certification, might not meet exactly the same criteria. They might exceed it. I don't know exactly. But it makes it really complicated for a regenerative brand trying to maintain like an identity preserved supply chain to say, hey, all of these, everything we use is XYZ certified or verified, whatever you know system you want to call out. And how, why like our system of like everything has to be certified is so hard for regenerative brands, because you're trying to work with nature and do the right thing. And sometimes things are going to be impacted. So I just want to call that out because it strikes me as like X, another one of those like extra challenges that regenerative brands have to face that most other brands don't have to worry about because commodity wheat is commodity wheat. Go to, you know, one of the list of hundreds of suppliers out there and find another wheat source, you know? So I wanted to call that out. Um, also wanted to talk about, you mentioned before, like the higher protein content in the chickpeas. I'm wondering if there are any other nutritional benefits that you all are aware of from this particular source. And then this is like a famous three-part question. (laughs) After that, I want to get into the branding side of the things because little sesame, like amazing branding, super clean, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't really like throw region at you like on its face. Really to me, like the primary attribute is like the smooth, like classic smooth hummus. So like, how are you Mm -hmm. communicating to consumers? Like number one, how do you get them into your brand in the first place? Where is Regen in that sort of like attribute hierarchy? And, you know, just, just what does that look like? What's that communication look like? How a three-part question becomes a nine-part question so fast. Right. We'll, I'm really we'll bad try, at that. We'll try to tackle it. Um, 
No, we want to go down the path of actually testing product and understanding sort of like nutritional value versus others. And um, that's definitely like on our radar, something we want to do. Um, you know, protein, you know, like I think part of the story we do tell getting the part A to the question was, you know, we do like lead with like plant-based protein and the power of hummus to, to deliver that. And so obviously like, um, again, the chickpeas as the driver there. So definitely want to like dig in there and understand more. Uh, I think, you know, there is like good macro studies out there that kind of make the case that like when things are growing regen, generally nutritional value is stronger. Obviously want to make that, that case on, on like a unit level basis with, with our product. Um, in terms of hierarchy of storytelling. Yeah. It's interesting for us. You know, we've um, on the retailer side, talking to retail buyers, we talk, we talk regen all day long because we are, we are first in category. We are leading the charge. We are way ahead of anyone else out there in terms of, Oh yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of building this supply chain as it relates to our category. Now, what we have found is that like it's we, it hasn't resonated as much when we've told that story using those exact words on 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 pack. So we've been more focused on pack of like highlighting Casey, this farmer, um, telling that story like through our social and other channels. Um, because I think people connect with like, the human story and it's like the power of our of our of our us growing together, right? Like this, this, this hummus business that's just outside of DC, you know, factories, you know, at this point it's been at 20, 30,000 pounds of hummus a week and this 5,000 acre farm in Montana and like how these stories come together around the chickpea plant is pretty awesome. And I think people really connect with, um, but we haven't gone hard at like sort of regen on pack. And, um, you know, I hope that will change. You know, I think we've, we've kind of hedged and gone more into like climate positive, right. So like, the thing I think that will can drive consumers a bit more right now, which is like, well, you know, I think health value and then like climate impact, I think are bigger drivers and they haven't necessarily like most consumers. I don't think have like understand the through line that we talked about earlier, which is like climate, food, agriculture, right? Like these things are all connected. So just talking about regen are like, great. It's, I don't even think they have much of an understanding beyond what it means beyond organics. So for us, we kind of lead them on this climate narrative more, which is like, there is real climate value in growing this way. Um, you know, the, the impact of no-till. And so we tell that story a lot. We, we you know, use, again, across our channels, we talk about, like, climate impact of, of growing food differently. And um, we lean in on that story. So on our pack, it says climate positive goodness. That's, you know, mm-hmm. where we've kind of landed today. But my goal is just to, as, we, as regen grows and understanding of it from consumer side grows, that we continue to lean into that message more. Mm-hmm. So... Kind of different stories to different people but the buyers i will say like for other brands out there that are thinking about going down the path of regen like i will say buyers especially like the big natural chain buyers like they want to they want to move in this direction so like it, it, it will give you a competitive advantage immediately mm-hmm. yeah i really like that example and i think it's important that you know little sesame is killing it um both from a product perspective and, in, and what i just learned from a category perspective as well and it's yeah. important for all of the brands in the space to kind of learn from those who are leading the charge and doing it the right way and i'm going to say the right way i don't just mean like the practices on the ground but like mm. where the the brand is actually growing in, in a category leader so mm. i super appreciate that share and what i like about it is, is is it kind of focuses on a similar story and regen is not the centerpiece but it's a critical piece right so it's like that direct farm relationship that direct trade relationship that you're highlighting in that farmer happens to be regenerative um so i think that's a really interesting way to showcase regen in sort of like not the forefront capacity and part two i like what you said about and this sort of proves anthony and i's theory of change also that it starts with human health 
and then like the the region piece and the climate piece can kind of be like a a loyalty attribute but not the main purchase driving attribute you know what i mean so it, it starts with totally taste and flavor and then human health yes. and then the the other one yeah yeah, I agree. And we, I feel like we've tried to bring a lot of nuance to that conversation because it's obviously different based on what kind of product you have and what geographies and retailers you're in. And that's, that's a really interesting arc for me to try and think about and step back because we don't have a lot of like really scaled regenerative brands at this point. I mean, we have a couple incumbents that are very committed that are scaled brands, but their portfolios maybe aren't necessarily like really fully regenerate that regenerative yet. And so I think about Dr. James Richardson, who wrote Ramping Your Brand, put this like really cool post, this article together about um, athletic brewing and about how their future growth is really about getting people to like not drink Coke or Dr. Pepper and to drink N.A. beer, not getting someone to who's like sober at the bar to drink N.A. beer, which I found super interesting to think through for regenerative brands like what's where, where when is that going to shift for a lot of these products and brands like at what revenue number and at what distribution? Because Climate positive might be this little cool thing that people on the coast at Whole Foods love, Nick. But when you get into Kroger in Cincinnati, somebody might somebody might want to not buy it because it says that or whatever. Nothing against Kroger in Cincinnati. I'm from the Midwest. It's just an example <laughs> of, you know, there, there's this like multifaceted, really deep, dense thing to think through. And it also just comes back to taste, flavor, nutrition at the end of the day. Like those are never going to change. And so I still think you always lead with those, which... Clearly, y'all have built a foundation there, but it is really interesting to think about almost like these secondary drivers, what's really meaningful and worth putting time into and like bringing to a consumer. Totally. Yeah. And I think for us, it's like, if it's not climate positive goodness, it's like American farmers. You know, I think like ever, everyone, yeah, yeah. Ever, ever, anyone American get down with that. And it's like, how do we like create this renaissance of American farming? That's good for everybody. I, and, and heal soil, like soil as a building block for like culture and community is, I, you know, I think is something we can all rally behind. So, you know, I think you're right. That narrative shifts, especially again, as you like, you know, as product and distribution shifts and grows, and there's certainly different narratives that are going to resonate. But our hope is that like this grown in America, this Montana story, which is like a real all American story can can really resonate. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, Nick. And to me, like, I think of regenerative agriculture as like the purple bridge between like the left leaning blue and the, the right leaning red, because mm. it, it like puts climate in the forefront, but also is like smallholder farmers, you know, um, mm. it's, it's like, let's, let's take care of the soil, but let's also like focus on ruminant animals and meat, really you know, you can, it's like, yeah, you can do both. You can really create mm. a bridge here that can get both parties interested and you can message to the entire United States, which is so rare to be able to do these days. Like I can't think of anything else outside of, I mean, literally anything else that can do that. So mm -hmm. I get super pumped about the possibilities. <laughs> No, I, mean, I, I live in D.C., so I feel that that divide constantly, and we're we're in the thick of it here. Yeah. So, 100, percent I think like I, I I like to tell that story all the time. And you know, food as a way to kind of build that bridge is the most powerful, right? Like nothing nothing stronger than a long table to kind of like have that conversation. So, you know, we actually did. We last time we were in Montana, we hosted a dinner on Casey's farm. We built like a 50 foot long table in the wow. middle of his chickpea fields and had that exact conversation, right? Like definitely like brought brought a bunch of stakeholders that sat on all sides of the aisle to the table. And, you know, I think we all shared the same vision, which is like, it's pretty cool that like, you can build an urban brand in, in DC and support this type of agriculture in Montana. And it's good for both. Mm. And it really was a bridge. And so there is definitely power there. And um, it's pretty awesome to be like the connector. And at the end of the day, we're talking about, can your product create an emotional connection with an eater, with a consumer, which I think is so important. And that's 
that's something that I really look at as an investor that's really important to me, especially in the category. And you look at my portfolio or some of the regen brands I think have high potential. Like it's because the brand, the product, the story, whatever it is, all these things that we just talked about have really that potential to create this emotional connection. Sometimes it's going to be climate. Sometimes it's going to be the farmer. Sometimes it's going to be the environmental outcome. Sometimes it's going to be, I'm going to make you skinnier, whatever that is, or, or all of the above. And like that truly is still the North Star every time, which is really cool. Yeah. And hummus is such like a visceral thing to eat. I think that's such a, yeah. the powerful thing of like sharing a tub of hummus. Like, you know, it is such a, I mean, it's a, such an old food, the history of it. It just like crossed so many cultures and um, yeah, it's such an accessible place to start. So yeah, I, I that's sort of, it's, you know, you, you find, you like learn these things about product, the deeper you get into it. Right. Like we, you know, we started making hummus just because we like loved hummus and wrote my partner, like, and, you know, when at family meals, the restaurant just like made the best hummus and we were all blown away. Right. Like, so it was mm-hmm. not like we had like done a, a B school case study about like hummus is this greatest product to launch at market. But you learn the kind of these int- intrinsic values of product as you go. It's like, hey, it's high visibility in the grocery store. And, yeah. you know, it's got like pretty high household penetration in America. And like it is food that really is connected as this like, visceral element that really people really do connect with and gets people really excited on like a effective way that's can have that kind of like big brand impact. So it's cool to kind of like learn about the product as you go to. Totally, man. I, I feel very much the same way about bone broth. You know, at first started selling bone broth. It's like a hot trend five years ago. Things are going well. But then you turn out it's like a millennia old superfood that people have been consuming to like yeah. save themselves from death for years. And it's actually like one of the first foods humans ever made for themselves mm-hmm. when like we were still scavengers and they were taking carcasses and cooking them in water to get nutrients like so it's it's amazing like what you can learn about a category after you've already been a part of the category um so that just well, really I resonated love, I, I you love go how communal hummus is right like mm. i bring i bring alex ice cream to a lot of parties as like the gateway product into regen for a lot of people but not everyone eats ice cream and i mean who doesn't like ice cream but you know it's way easier to bring some little sesame and just throw it on the the mez board right because everyone's having apps or drinks or whatever and so i love it as a product that can be a gateway product into the bigger like regen universe too totally and you yeah. get to bring a zach's mighty chip or a moonshot cracker or something else yeah. and just like really throw down and go like full regen <laughs> I, we've, exactly. we've, we've i've crushed a lot of little sesame hummus with Zach, zach's cracker so yeah. right there with you yeah and I, I, it's cool about these like old cuisines, like, like the Brombra story is like, there's just so much like knowledge built into old cuisine, right? Like that food mm-hmm. culture that's like imprinted in there that we don't necessarily pay attention to or like where, but once you start digging in, you're like, wow, there's just like the health value, the use, use of whole animal. Like there's just so much there. So if you pay attention, look backwards, there's often a lot to learn about, like how to, how to move it forwards and try to like heed a lot of, of that history to like inform what we do now too. No doubt. I do kind of want to pivot the conversation more towards like the commercial piece. So like you guys started creating amazing hummus. You got this beautiful packaging. The branding is fantastic. From your perspective as a founder in the restaurant industry, what did that pivot into the retail space look like? Like how did you select the right broker partners or how did you yeah. decide what accounts you wanted to get into? And what did scale look like and what are you hoping to achieve in the future? You mentioned like Whole Foods and Sprouts National, handful of like regional independence. Like what's the goal in the next, you know, one, three, five years? Totally. Um, so, you know, I was lucky to like surround myself early when we started to make this transition to CPG with people that had like been there and, and done it before. So, you know, luck, shout out to Pat Jame, who's like built a lot of CBG brands. He was on like the Honest Tea team and Sir Kensington's and Good Culture. He's now with Media. He's on our board, but he's been an advisor since day one. The first piece of advice he gave me was like, focus on velocity. Don't worry about door count. Just like crush mm-hmm. the velocity story. If you crush mm-hmm. velocity, Smart. you're going to open up 
the doors will open for you. And so every was, founder operator listen to that 17 times. Sorry to cut you off, Nick, but yes. No, and that and that was that was like our North Star from day one. And mm-hmm. um that was part one. So we were like hyper focused on we were in store meeting the buyers, like, you know, making sure that products are on shelf, merchandise look good, like all the blocking and tackling of just like performing at retail. Mm-hmm. Um and that was like really like what I think opened up again, like the, the, the all that set of doors that came behind it. I think that was like a big driver. Well, before but, we pivot to other doors, let's like really like dive deep on Velocity. Like what were yeah, you doing to that. drive Velocity? Obviously you get yeah. on shelf. Was it demos? Was it, you know, TPRs on shelf? Was it end caps? Like what did you do to drive Velocity once you acquired that first route of distribution? I th- you know, for us, luckily we had like an established brand in DC that people knew and we had like there was like relative excitement about us then making this leap into, into retail. Yeah. So for us, it was keeping product on shelf. Like I can't tell you the number of calls like from my mother, like the first few weeks, like there's no product on shelf. Like I can't get the hummus. I'm like angry friends and family that were like te- texting and DMing and calling me like, there's no product, like what's going on. And yeah. I still get those often today. And it's like, I think a lot of it's just like, um, again, the blocking and tackling, like making sure products on shelf, the facings are good. You have to build a good brand block. Um, you have good visibility in store. So it was like all that stuff we were really focused on. We were in the store. I spent countless hours in Whole Foods walk-ins. I still do. I love going to Whole Foods walk-ins. But um, we were just on TPR last week, and I was I spent like half my week in Whole Foods walk-ins. I, I, I love that. But I think that's um, just being in the store, meeting the dairy buyers for us is kind of manage our department, meeting the stockers, you know, giving them swag, getting them excited about the brand giving them coupons so they could taste product, like all that excitement building on the store level, relationship building on the store level, like paid dividends for us. Um, in that mm-hmm. first set of the first set of stores we got into. Man, I, as somebody who grew up, I guess not grew up, I know this is not when I was a child, but my, my career arc, you know, started a lot in store level execution, you know, and I really appreciate the focus. You all had that laser focus on like, how do you win there? And to me, like the key takeaway, at least in the beginning is winning your backyard, mm-hmm. you know, like, Crush your regional, like you already have an audience in DC. Yeah, I think you mentioned like the Whole Foods Mid Atlantic brought you in first. Like, crush there, get your velocities up there so that when you do approach a national buyer, you, say, you get strong data to say, like, hey, proof of concept is here. Like, people are buying the product because it's good. They know who we are. We can, we can duplicate the success elsewhere before just like chasing distribution for the sake of chasing distribution. So, that's huge. Also, the fact that you're like developing and cultivating relationships with the individuals who are touching your product every day, mm. such a huge impact, like something I don't think the regenerative ecosystem is focusing enough on, because mm. at the end of the day, like you're talking about products not in stock. If you got the buyers in store and the people who are stocking your product as advocates and they see on a regular basis that like, hey, maybe we need to add an extra facing or two to increase our holding capacity on shelf to prevent mm. out of stocks, like they're going to do that for your brand because you have that relationship. So. I think that's something we don't talk about enough um, and it's hugely, hugely important, especially for like a small brand just trying to show like proof of concept. Totally. Yeah, Tanner on our team who's huge region advocate. Um, him and I have visited every region of Whole Foods since we went global and we've, um, wow. we had like 30 to 40 stores per region, top performing stores and, and do the same thing. So we're still committed to it. I've, I've hit every region now, but uh, North Atlantic. So um, yeah, wow. we've, just, we've, we've, we've kept that approach of like, just being in the store, meeting those people. Those are the people that move, move the product at the end of the day, like you're saying. And that's, so that was, that was always a driving force. I think like the first um, kind of like North star um, approach that like helped us win at retail. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah. So many people do that wrong and it's, it's like refreshing, I think, to just remember that you can just do the blocking and tackling really well and that's good enough. And there also is like a huge problem of bad advice. Like you got really good advice, but a lot of people will tell you the opposite, chase doors, uh, which is incorrect because it's just a great way to burn money and not have real tangible performance results and then not be able to raise more money. And we know how scarce money is now and how much more of an importance people are putting on profitability. So like it's super important. And I also think not just from an investor facing perspective, but when you're trying to build regenerative supply chains with farmers and with those middle market processors and people like you want to sell through their product and you want to be turning product and buying more and, and doing all that, not having these huge lead times. And so um, we, we make it sound simpler and easier than it is. I get all that. And it, it's still very hard, but I think it's good to remember those fundamentals. Totally. And I think part two of it is like focus on your region. Like you're saying, kind of your, Kyle, your backyard. I mean, we won in our backyard. Then we like beyond Whole Foods, we started testing in some secondary, some indie doors. Like, does this work outside of Whole Foods? And then like the same approach, you know, like relationship first, really build, get some like consolidation and some regional efficiencies, right? Like you're shipping products all over the US. It's really difficult, especially a cold chain product. Like it's not going to work. The economics don't pencil for early days for a small brand. So, um, either you can like spend a lot of venture money and, and go that route, or you can like build really with a regional focus. So part two of like focusing on the store level is focusing on a region level. So we went like hard into DC and just like filled out as many doors as we could in our home region first. And that was really like step one of the journey was like focus on some core doors, focus on the core region. And then from there, we've had the same approach as we've grown, right? Like, like a few key retailers and do really well where we know like the levers we can pull in those stores to make an impact. And then like a few key regions, sort of starting to see like efficiencies on the op side as well of like actually getting product to those regions. And I'd say like part one and two have, have really helped us um, manage growth. And like you're saying, a pretty tough climate, it's hard to raise money, debt's expensive, equity markets are shifting. Um, and so it was definitely a time where like you had to be a good steward of capital to like make it work. Share, totally, man. Sh sh share more ahead. about that, Nick. Sorry, Kyle. Because it is hard right now. And I think it's especially hard for a lot of regenerative brands. And you guys have raised a significant amount of capital and obviously performed really well and, and stewarded it correctly. But just expound on that a little bit, because I think it's important. We, we highlight sometimes maybe the challenges, but I, I think you y'all are a success. So share why that's been the case and just kind of your journey on the, on the fundraising totally. side. Well, I'll first give you my gripe, which is like, I think there is this fallacy, I think right now in like American funding ecosystem where it's like every brand's got to be a hundred million dollar brand. And I do think you can build like a really good regional $20 million brand over time and have a different use of and you know, kind of source of capital strategy. Um, I wish there was like a stronger ecosystem to make those things work and they're coming. And I, and I think like, I believe in a lot of, I hope there'll be like a lot more awesome $20 million regional brands than not everyone chasing the billion dollar exit, right? Like it doesn't, this unicorn approach to CPG is just, there's a lot of failure along the way. So I, I wish there'd be like more winners and smaller winners, but that's just sort of my one gripe with like the funding ecosystem as a whole. You know, I think also we came, I think five, six years ago, like the funding landscape was also very different. We're like, there was a lot of equity, a lot of equity moving into CPG and moving earlier in the growth curve. So it was like easier to take a leap, right? Like you had a good pedigree and a decent idea. You could get funded for it. That's shifted a lot, right? Like all these investors are either getting out of the space altogether or moving deeper in the growth curve and like want to see more product market fit, um, at least five million bucks in, in like kind of sales before they're willing to take a leap. And so it's shifted for from where I sit, like what I've tried to do is like, it's not just equity, right? Like we have to, let's think about like, how can we have a more diverse capital stack? So thinking about pulling all the levers and like having 
you know, which again, just insulates us from challenges, right? Like, oh, we can't, equity markets are tough. Well, we have like, we've built an interesting debt stack that can also work. Or right. we're looking at pursuing grant opportunities. Like, does the USDA have dollars out there that can support us if we make this agriculture story a big part of our brand? So I think for us, we've tried to just like diversify capital stack. Now, at the end of the day, however creative you can be, the reality is, is you need to convince equity to, to invest to make these things work. They are pretty cash intensive. And again, once you do start to scale, like you do have to spend against it to perform um, at scale. And so I'd say like there is this unlock of, of equity that is necessary. Um, but I think like getting further along in the curve and not just taking the money, because also with the money comes demands of growth. And then when you get on that, that treadmill of like you're just chasing growth and it's a steep curve, it's pretty easy to start burning capital um, and then you're, you're either like, you're, you're at really at the helm of the equity markets. Can you raise more or are you going to tap out? And so again, I think early, smarter, strategic, slower growth, and then bringing in like equity at the right moment, I think is the recipe. Now I can't say I figured it all out. Like I'm, I'm still early in the journey too. And for sure. you know, I'd say like the thing that keeps me up at night the most is, is paying for it all. Right. It's like, it's hard out here to raise money. We've had some early successes. We are in good accounts. We're performing pretty well. And like, I'm very encouraged, but it's still a really tough climate. So, um, and capital is expensive. So definitely, you know, even from where we sit, which I feel like very privileged to sit there right now, it's um, it's still hard and it's still, still the thing that keeps me up at night the most. Mm. So you're not you're not alone, all, all the founders out there. I mean, it's definitely the, the hardest part of the business. No doubt. I super appreciate that share. Somebody who like ACs the finance uh, wizard of the two of us by by a wide margin. Um, so that was that was a lot of learning for me. And I really appreciate that. Um, I did want to use an analogy earlier. There's a podcast I listened to a while back about uh, the Japanese pre World War II and during World War II, how they were able to dominate the Pacific. And this might seem like a totally off topic tangent that I'm going down, but I could not help but think. <laughs> about like building a brand and conquering territory. Like it's almost like mm -hmm. a warfare mindset you have to have. And like, mm -hmm. you don't want to overextend yourself mm -hmm. and be caught trying to resupply these like fronts, these lines where you're trying to gain and grow distribution and mm -hmm. losing out on efficiencies because you're shipping products across the country in very small quantities. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So to your point, like you, you have to raise all this money and then you have to use it the right way. And I keep, I love how you keep coming back to this, like start small, like grow regionally, experiment and go from there. You know what I mean? Prove success. And that's the best way to spend the money that is so hard to raise in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, again, just want to bring it back to that. Cause I think that's like another thing that our, our community can listen to and learn from because it's, it seems to be working really well for those. SME. Totally. And I think third part of that success, I think is like build the brand block, which is hard to do, right. You get like, you mm -hmm. might get a chance at Kroger out of the gate, right? Like they might, it might, a product might be interesting to make, but like one facing one skew, hard sell right like yeah it's gonna be tough to make it work and i'd say like that's the third piece for us that we really focused on um we got advice from it was actually the former ceo of Sabra's guy mickey tolman and he was like brand block is everything like that's why Sabra won and that's why that's the power of like build a strong brand block be be present on shelf like that visibility in store is the biggest driver that's your biggest marketing tool is like just being seen on shelf um and so that has been like the third focus and that only happens if you're like focused on key doors and adding SKUs in those doors and building that brand block, then you have a case study to go to other retailers and say, hey, look, when I got a four SKUs, like this impact I can have. Mm -hmm. 
I love that analogy. It goes back to the warfare analogy. If you're going to send one dude to conquer a space, like he's never going to win on his own. You know what I mean? Right. You know, it's brand new territory. You need to have something recognizable. You need to have a handful of SKUs on shelf, um, which kind of brings me to another point I wanted to mention. You know, I saw a collab between Little Sesame and Flyby Jing. I think it was a spicy yeah, pumpkin yeah. skew, which yeah. was fire, by the way. Um, <laughs> Do you have any more, like, is, is that going to be part of Little Sesame in the future, like a seasonal rotation, like some seasonal flavors? And if so, like, based on my understanding of how retail works, like, seasonal in and outs are difficult. Like, how do you manage that if that is part of, you know, the, the growth opportunity or growth strategy for Little Sesame moving forward? Good question. We view it as, like, a, a marketing opportunity. And, um, and so, yeah, we definitely have more coming. We have one with the DJ coming in the spring. We have one with a cool Mexican brand out of New York in, in summer. So, yeah, we're definitely leaning into that narrative. For us, like, we're, we're still in, like, brand, brand building mode where, yeah. you know, we, we can leverage other brands to help us grow and um, lend value to each other as we're growing. And so that was what I, you know, I was, like, the value of, of the partnership with Jing and, and Fly by Jing team was, like, you know, we could basically ride this thing together. For them, they're getting visibility in a high-end part of the store, right? Like hummus, you know, sits at the edge of the store. Everyone sees it, and it's driving them to, like, center store where their product's, you know, a bit more buried, right? And so it was, like, a win for them. And for us, it's, like, we get to ride the, all the excitement around Jing and the products she built. So it was a win-win. So we try to look at, like, all partnerships that way. Definitely, like, the retail economics are challenging to navigate. But, um, again, like, in this brand building phase, it's, like, we have core SKUs, and then we, like, how can we add some marketing value, creative marketing dollars? If we're breaking even on those marketing dollars, um, you know, it's versus like some of the shopper tactics we could spend against are just so expensive, right? And so um, it, it for us has been like a creative, low cost um, tactic to help us kind of like expand our reach and build some of that like top of funnel brand awareness. Hmm. That's super interesting. I love it. Um, I really desperately want you to tell me what those new seasonal flavors are going to be, but I understand that you can't. Um, that's okay. Not too much pressure. Um, I'm really curious to get your take on demos. You know, I, I work for a bone broth company. Demoing yeah. bone broth is like one of the hardest, most cumbersome uphill battles you'll ever have to do. To me, hummus, especially when your hummus is such a beautiful texture and taste, like it strikes me as a potentially high ROI demo category. Have you all done demos? And if so, like how has that helped or not helped? Yes. No, we, we we have a demo, building out our demo team, and that team is like 10 or 12 strong right now across the U.S. in key markets. So we really focus on like top performing Whole Foods and Sprout stores across the U.S. Are these in-house so, Little Sesame employees? Like yeah, you all yeah. are hiring and managing this team like, and they're full-time? Yeah, not full-time, but it's a lot of, but it's an awesome, I mean, honestly, there's nothing more inspiring than when I get on those calls with like the brand ambassadors and get to and talk and meet with them. It's They're like so fired up and to have this like, energized group of people that like believe in brand and they're all around the u.s kind of like helping tell our story and honestly nothing more energizing for me than being on those calls and so yeah we built an amazing group shout out to like tanner and maddie on my team who actually like built that squad um and it's growing and so we're excited we were we're gonna do upwards of a thousand demos at whole foods this year wow wow wild so ripping demos <clears throat> yeah i yeah i like two things about that and the seasonal stuff one the best marketing dollar is something that gets someone to try your product period so like you right. said even if you're like not making a ton of money on it or any money at all it's still a break even or profitable like marketing expense which i think is which i think is huge um totally and i guess for, for the retailers too right like they want innovation so it's like it's also a win-win for them too right like they and it's potentially driving a new customer to the set right like the customer who knows the fly by Jing brand might not be like your traditional hummus customer. So it's like, we also think about like how we can build products that are also like a win for retailers, right? Like I think 
a lot of times it's easy to approach the relationship from retailers of like, I want more for me and my brand, right? But it's like to provide, how are you going to be like accretive to the category? How are you going to add new dollars, new customers to set? Like that makes it a win for them and much easier, yes, to bring on the product. And so, and I feel like hummus is like food super seasonal. And I would assume hummus is the same, like all these gathering holidays, you want to build around that. And another business I'm invested in, they, they sent out an investor update and they were talking about, We've spent so much time and energy trying to build at the low points of seasonality when like they're going to be low. Let's put that energy into like when dollars are flowing and just maximizing those opportunities. And so I think it's also just a beautiful example of, hey, people are going to be already buying more hummus because they got a Christmas party or an Easter party. Let's get them to try the new seasonal skew because, yeah, they're going to probably make room on the board that holiday for, you know, an extra thing of hummus, which is like the perfect time to add those dollars to the basket. Fish, fish, well, where the fish, are. fish where the fish are, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's like the trial period, right? Because during that high season, you might acquire some new customers because that's when everybody's buying hummus. And then you could create a loyal customer who's going to come back and buy you when <clears throat> it's low season. You know what I mean? So like to, to, to use Nick's words, like fish where the fish are. And then you mm-hmm. might find the right fish is going to end up becoming a year-round customer like me because little sesame is bomb. I eat hummus year-round. Um, okay. No, it's important. You, you got to get your got to get your garbanzo beans in. <laughs> Love that. We're here to help. Um, so I'm curious, like future wise, what else is mm-hmm. in the pipeline? Like preserved lemon hummus is coming soon. Um, I'm going to buy some online because it's amazing. Also, for those who haven't bought Little Sesame online, do you guys still send out like the pita? Like, can you buy the pita? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both on, both available online. Wow. We just dropped our online shop like, I don't know, a couple months ago. So now you can get, we have a hummus club there. Um, it's pretty cool. It's every season we drop a new flavor available exclusively on the Hummus Club. It's a lot of stuff that will end up in retail. And we're kind of like using it as a fun testing ground and building community. People oh, are excited yeah. about new flavor it's drops. Fun. So that's coming. Um, so check it out. That's at eatlittlesesame.com. And part of that is you get the pita, which is which is super tasty. So yeah, the pita, like the pita, I can't describe like a store-bought pita versus the pita that Little Sesame sends you when you consume the hummus. It is night and day. It's, it's honestly like demeaning to call it the same word. It's that level of difference. Um, so for those who are like truly passionate about hummus and or pita, like go to eatlittlesesame.com, get the pita. I think you warm it in the oven. Is that right, Nick? If memory serves correct? Drop, it comes, we, we ship it frozen, just freeze, and you drop it right in the toaster in like two minutes, you do have a really good piece of pita. So um yeah I, I'm, I'm i'm right there with you it's it is uh just like in a league of its own above the store-bought hummus pita that you get otherwise it's pretty which is pretty rough out there yeah it's 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 crazy so what are some of the other like you, you don't have to tell us all the things that are new but what are some of the other like rotational flavors that the hummus club is going to get to try that is not necessarily available to everybody else and i'm really just asking this for me personally um i don't even <laughs> care about the audience right now so i, I just need to know um, you know, we're, st- I, I, I kind of like hinted at the next couple that are coming, right? We have one with a DJ coming in spring and we have one with a really awesome Mexican brand. We are doing one with a mushroom brand. You probably could figure out that is in the fall. So we have three like blocked in, in pipeline. Um, we are dropping like a big new product for us, um, somewhere in the fall. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, same, same, it's still a hummus, but it's kind of age for a uh, different demo and so excited about that drop um i can allude to that like you know i'm a young dad and so certainly have like feeding kids on my mind um right right beyond, beyond that you know i'll leave the rest to, to be figured out but that's coming that's a big a big product drop for us this year um yeah we have we have some fun stuff coming we um it's definitely like you know ron and i like are not you know we're still like chefs at our core that like when we're in the kitchen together, which doesn't happen enough anymore, but 
that we have a RNBA together tomorrow. It's like the most fun we have. And so um, it's really awesome to like get back in the kitchen and just like, you know, spend a day cooking together and playing with things. And a lot of, a lot of fun happens there and a lot of creativity um, that, you know, then it takes months and often years to actually commercialize these things that we're learning right. the hard way. And like at a restaurant, you like turn it on the next day, but um, we're learning that like the commercialization process takes time. But again, those R&D days are the best. And so, yeah, definitely we'll keep like the innovation coming. And that's, I think it'd be a fun differentiator from us from like the rest of the set is that we'll always, we'll always keep it fun. And you sort of like, hinted to this like is the goal to stay in hummus or is there potential to depart into other categories that might still be like you know perishable dips or like do you see little sesame as a brand that could go like cross category what are your thoughts uh, you know we're we're we're, we're dabbling in a few things we also have a potentially new product that's kind of an adjacent sit it would sit with the hummus set but kind of be adjacent um that might drop this spring so yeah, we have a, we have a lot coming we definitely are like pushing the envelope on innovation and the, again Ron and I on the creative side and then like us having self-manufacturing is like we can get product to market pretty quick so mm-hmm. we have that awesome relationship with some of our buyers now it's like hey like we have this feedback loop of like you know how again the, the, the framework always being like how can we add more dollars to the to the set and then working mm-hmm. with the buyers to be like kind of where where can we move and grow like the little sesame line together but hummus is hummus is like who we are and our, our starting point and it's um will always kind of be the, the centerpiece. So one thing, Nick, you keep mentioning is like the way you're approaching these relationships at retail and it's like how you're bringing value to the aisle, how you're adding incremental dollars, how you're pulling center store shoppers and bringing them to Hummus potentially for the first time. And I think it's really important that all of the regenerative founders who listen or any founder kind of resonates with that or, or, or hears that message because that's how these people are being judged, right? They're They're... They're performance-based, like they have to deliver dollars to the category. So if you can come to them with that partnership mentality, say, hey, we want to help you grow. Like, what can we do to work together to make this happen? I think that's a fantastic way to, to continue to grow your business and solidify those relationships. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I was lucky to go through Leap, which is like Whole Foods Accelerator Program. Yeah. And I would say like that was one of the biggest takeaways, which is like so many brands just come at it from a transactional perspective of like, hey, this is what's good for my brand. Here's, the, here's my like sales case. I think like, the winning case will always be a win-win with you and the retailer. Um, yeah. And so I think that's definitely like, um, I would definitely say like follow that approach and it will be, it will pay dividends. Mm. Totally. Yeah. I, I want to touch on something that uh, I wanted us to bring up earlier in the agronomy kind of discussion, but we just, I just forgot. Um, and it's the fact that you guys are certified USDA organic, Nick, but you have not done any of the regenerative certs yet. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. I know, I know Casey had some interesting opinions, but he wasn't able to share with the, uh, them with us, unfortunately. So you can speak on his behalf, but I think I, I want to just give a nod to organic hummus, like even before we talk regenerative, because the, you know, EWG did this, did this um, study uh, of glyphosate in hummus in 2020, I believe. And the numbers are pretty staggering. I have it pulled up and I'm just going to read it off. More than 90% of the conventional hummuses had detectable levels of glyphosate. Over one third of the samples tested exceeded their benchmark of what is considered safe for daily consumption. And one sample had 15 times the amount of recommended daily consumption. So just ridiculous. And we even know that some organic product is getting glyphosate traces in it because of drift from other farm fields. Um, And we know a lot of conventional farmers are spraying glyphosate on chickpeas as a desiccant to kill and kind of dry the crop at the end of the season. So I would love to hear you just speak to like 
why organic is so important with that table setting and then how you guys have looked at the regenerative certifications today. Yes, I mean, I think the desiccant story is also an interesting one because like it's, I think no one really knows that about chickpeas is that um, Mm. not only are they used, they're they're spraying chemicals throughout the growing process and glyphosate is like, you know, whatever it's a word, but it's cancer causing and it's pretty proven at this point. So Mm -hmm. I think like, you know, the other thing is that then they're spraying it on it again right before it's harvested to kill the plant. And so it's a lot more work for the farmers to, as Casey does, um, to kind of go through and um, and harvests without having to spray before. So it's definitely work. There is that like investment of, of labor hours into the into the product that definitely is, you know, in swathing and then collecting the dried plant. But so there's definitely like an investment there. But again, I think a very worthwhile one. And um, so that's we, we can stand behind that and like our product. And there isn't, um, you know, we're going through some extra search in terms of like actual chemical analysis of product. But I'd probably say like we can, you know, um, confidently say that like our product is, is clean all the way through and um, which is a big differentiator. And so I'd say on the second piece in terms of regen, you know, we're navigating what that means, like in terms of like a regen cert. And I think it's, you know, the pros and cons of the relationship with like a single farmer um, is that like, you know, it, I trust him a lot and like sort of his instincts and like what's best for the farmers and right. Like a lot of the um, labeling and certs are good for consumers, right. They give us like, a clear guideline if we if we kind of and, and an educational tool to really be like okay this is organic and this is what organic means and now we can do the same come behind it with regenerative this is regenerative this is what it means and you can trust that this certifying body proved it like and i'd say that what i've learned along the way is like i'm impressed with like the level of of scrutiny that like we get with our organic certs right they're doing the diligence and the hard work to actually like prove out that our supply chain is is, is legitimate so yeah. that's like one thing I, I probably like went into it like a little bit conspiracy theorists and like I'm not how how good can organic really be, but <laughs> I'd say like the certifying bodies are are doing a good job out there. So I think like consumers can have a pretty high level of trust that if it exists. Now, I do think regenerative is different. It's also hard to really like define in specific terms because it's not like organic where it's like the parameter is really clear, right? I think like what the cool thing is is like the experimental side of regenerative, which is right. it's more of like a template and a framework of thinking about farming than it is like a, a coded system of farming. Mm. So I think, and that would be Casey's, I think, uh, well, speak for, but my guess is something along those lines would be like kind of like a retort to like why he's necessarily, uh, you know, hesitant to like go down the path of right now, a regen cert where it's so early in like us understanding what regen can be and how we define it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, but I understand again, I sit on both sides where it's like, I understand the value of a consumer at Whole Foods being like, is this regenerative organic certified, mm-hmm. but also want to make sure that like, it's a win-win for farmers. And I think, you know, ROC is doing a good job with it, right? Like they're getting brands to pay versus farmers to pay. I think there's a win there, Yeah. but I think it's just going to take time to really understand, like kind of like us coming together to find what regen means and finding a way to like apply that to farms. That's, that's reasonable and not too cumbersome and doesn't make them do things that are going to like actually make things worse. And so, um, you know, I think that's the challenge of all these certs, especially as they come up for like commercial purposes, as they can often be like interpreted in bad ways that can have negative impact. So um, yeah. hope is that ROC doesn't land there and the certs can can figure out a way to like kind of like bottle the, the creativity of what farming regeneratively means. Yeah. A lot of nuance, a lot of layers. Lot of, um, yeah. And that is the essence of regenerative. And so if we, if we don't embrace that, I think that's a really big miss 
Um, and so I want things to have the utmost integrity and I want things to really mean something. And I want this to not get greenwashed into oblivion, but I also want us to not make sure we totally erode the entire essence of why we need to do it in the first place, which is we have to have that nuance and that flexibility in this path and this incremental, um, you know, progress over perfection mentality. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, Regenerative is all about continual improvement, right? Mm -hmm. And what I really like about this, again, very human, very personal story with Casey is like, you know, organic is defined by a set of inputs that you can or cannot do. And mm -hmm. if we apply that same sort of methodology to a regenerative certification, like Casey may not be able to experiment the way he wants to experiment to try to do its best for the land so he can continue mm -hmm. to improve time over time. Whereas mm -hmm. a certification almost feels mm -hmm. like you have achieved and now you don't need to continue to experiment. And I'm just reading between the lines. I don't know, Casey. But this is what I'm gathering from the conversation. Like he might feel hamstrung or constrained by his ability to be the farmer he wants to be because he now has to reach this like criteria set by a third party who isn't on his farm every day like he is. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, really appreciate that personal human story because I, I also agree, like from a commercialization standpoint, it makes it easy for consumers to say, cool, like I want to support a regenerative product. This makes my life easy. I don't have to research every single product in a category. Um, but we do need to like, unfortunately continue to live in this weird nuanced wild west space right now where we're still trying to figure out the right way to do this and to commercialize regen because to me i think there's a lot of great the effort right out there ways. but there's no perfect way but exactly so that's the key is like it's not the right way it's the right ways and i think we have to Correct. continue to embrace that because there is no run right there is no one right way or it totally violates the entire point of this whole thing totally agree hallelujah <laughs> Um, Nick, I'll take us home with the final question, man. Excited to get your thoughts on it, uh, which is how do we get regen brands to have 50% market share by 2050? I think relationships first, you know, I think the same, you know, I think theme we've gone back to time and time again here, right? Like, I think that's going to power brands to be successful. Um, you know, I think both upstream with farmers and downstream with retailers, like, I think it's just the relationship first, um, because I think that's like what this whole movement is really about, right? Like it is back to that conversation of like, how do we, how do we connect across the aisle? Like what's like a human thing that can really like drive us forward. And these like big cultural shifts that happen over time in societies are driven by people, right? Like, mm -hmm. and we are the ones that control the market forces. And so I think if we get like people to feel ownership of it from both sides, um, I think like we can start to see consumer shift and then agriculture shift behind it. And so, I'm a believer that it's going to be, it's going to be the people that do it. And um, that's like one person at a time, you know, having honest conversations and food's a great tool to have those conversations around. And um, hummus is a, a perfect, even better one to do it with. And, um, you know, dig into a plate of hummus and have these conversations. And I think like we can start to see some real shifts. Man, very similar to your commercial strategy, you know, start small, win in your backyard, one relationship at a time. And that's how you create that meaningful um change you know otherwise you know I, I think you're spot on we're not gonna be able to change everybody at one time there's not gonna be a one singular campaign or moment that's gonna, everybody's gonna be like oh i understand regen now i only want to buy regenerative brands like that's never gonna happen um so I, I really like your answer i don't think we've ever had an answer like that before on the pod um mm -hmm. and i think it's a great perspective mm -hmm. amen agree appreciate you joining us brother this is amazing um lots of really cool stuff that y'all are doing and it seems like you're really doing it the right way so just appreciate your leadership appreciate you joining us and uh just keep kicking ass man no right back at you guys thanks for your leadership thanks for building this thing and giving me an opportunity to tell my story and um yeah we'll 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 keep fighting the good fight and let's uh we'll see you at expo
Sounds no like doubt. Fun. One last reminder for anybody listening, eatlittlesesame.com. Go check it out. Um, can't wait to sign up for the Hummus Club. Let's go. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. For show notes, episode transcripts, and more information on our guests and what we discuss on the show, check out our website, regen-brands.com. That is regen-brands.com. You can also find our Regen Recaps on the website. Regen Recaps take less than five minutes to read and cover all the key points of the full hour-long conversations. You can check out our YouTube channel, Regen Brands Podcast, for all of our episodes with both video and audio. The best way to support our work is to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, subscribe to future episodes, and share the show with your friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Regen Brands Podcast, brought to you by the Regen Coalition and Outlaw Ventures. We hope you learned something new in this episode, and it empowers you to use your voice, your time, and your dollars to help us build a better and more regenerative food system. Love you guys.